very much for joining our event today. Um, my name is uh, Stefan Hartog. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Government at the LSE, and I work on Middle East political economy issues, historically with a particular focus on the Gulf monarchies. Uh, and uh, we're very happy today to uh, welcome Nora Dabal, who's going to talk about her book, Charity in Saudi Arabia, Civil Society under Authoritarianism. Uh, and uh, the way we've set up this logistically is that Nora is going to present uh, sort of the key arguments of her book for about 15 minutes. Then we'll have a Q&A with uh, our own fellow, uh, Hannah Al-Mubayed from the Middle East Center for another 15 to 20 minutes. And then the rest of the time we'll do um, Q&A and please use the Q&A function for that if you got any questions. So submit them in writing and don't use the chat box. Uh, use the, the Q&A box at the, the, the bottom just to the left of the chat on your uh, Zoom panel. Um, and uh, the, I should also note that you can receive a 20% discount when you purchase the book via the link provided in the Zoom chat box. So that's worth checking. Um, and uh, the event is being recorded. Uh, so finally, a uh, very quick note of introduction on uh, our two speakers. So Nora Derbal is a postdoc currently at the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She's previously held a postdoctoral fellowship at the American University of Cairo and worked as a research associate for the Orient Institute uh, in Beirut. In Saudi Arabia, she has visiting positions at the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies in Riyadh, as well as at Ifat University and King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah. She received her doctorate in 2017, Islamic Studies from the Freie Universität in Berlin, and her research interests center on Islamic charity and civil society, knowledge production and Islam, and Gulf-Palestine relations. Then our discussion today is Hannah Mubayed, a visiting fellow at uh, our Middle East Center and a research fellow at the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies. Her research explores the influence of social dynamics and attitudes towards work, education and career choices in youth transitions in the GCC, with a particular emphasis on vocational education in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. She's worked with several private, public and not-for-profit entities, managing multi-stakeholder research projects related to youth, careers, entrepreneurship, and education, and she's got over 15 years of experience consulting for different academic institutes, businesses, think tanks, and consultancies, including Chatham House, SOAS, UCL consultants, and various entities within the Middle East. Uh, and at this point, I'd like to hand over the floor to Noah, who I think has produced, has prepared a couple of slides that she wants to share, and I'll be a stern taskmaster and you know, try to keep you to 15 minutes so we get both uh, a discussion and the Q&A in the very confined spaces of uh, the next 53 minutes. Uh, Noah, the floor is all yours. Thank you very much. Thank you um, for taking the time uh, to those who, to the audience here whom I cannot see, but um, I want to really thank you, Stefan, Hannah, for taking the time to engage with the book. Um, and let me start by saying that I think I'm a much better writer than speaker. I'm, I'm tend to be much more clear in my writing than in speaking and feel free to really ask questions if something that I mentioned here now is not clear um, to you. And I feel really the, you know, when you ask me what is, why engage with the book? Why is it worth reading the book? I think what makes it different from other contributions and other books on the Gulf and particularly on Saudi Arabia um, that have come out in recent years um, and in recent years, I mean, since 2015 maybe, is um, the level of detail and the depth um, that you find in the book. It is really 
um, rich in detail. And that is, you know, you might now think, oh God, so much to read. But I think this is really where I make a difference in my writing because um, these details allow me to really show the complexities involved in these questions of civil society and charity and everyday Islam, youth, women, all these topics that I touch on um, in my writing. So if you, um, if you have the time over the summer, um, I'd like to encourage you to really take the time and read through some of the case studies. Um, and uh, wait for the cheap paperback, which is going to come out uh, at some point in the summer. Now, I want to um, quickly introduce you to the major work. Uh, it's a 10-year project, which I will summarize in 10 minutes. Um, and I've prepared a PowerPoint um, to help me do that. And I'm hoping that you will uh, see it now. So wait, can you see this? Is it clear to you now what you see? Okay, so I'll talk you through um, the research process and then I want to focus on two aspects uh, with regard to the findings. And one is this question of civil society under authoritarianism and the other is the question of Islam or everyday Islam in Saudi Arabia. So as I said, this the book is the result of a 10 year research process. Um, which started, which you can summarize in three rounds of fieldwork between 2009 and 2020. In 2009, 2010, I spent about a year as a visiting student at King Abdulaziz University in Jeddah. King Abdulaziz University is Jeddah's largest public university. Um, and at the time the Jeddah floods happened, which had the effect that campus was flooded and there was no um, no class. And I joined my fellow students who began engaging in volunteer work. And this really started with individual efforts, individuals who gave charity to those victims, those affected by the floods. On um, around, 20, uh, around the 25th of November in 2009, Jeddah experienced an unusual amount of rain, um, which flooded especially the south and the east of the city. Uh, houses built from poor quality collapsed. Um, there was water all over which ca carried away cars, the water currents were at times really strong. Um, bridges collapsed. Uh, official numbers of the people who disappeared or died stood at around 150 and unofficial um, numbers rose to around 3000 um, victims, deaths due to the floods. And because this happened on the first day of the annual Islamic pilgrimage, the state relief services were absent because the state focused its emergency relief services on Mecca and Medina. And so what we saw within a few days was really a mobilization that came from the people that started with individual acts of charity, but then soon um, was taken up by um, a number of informal um, organizations um, and so a Facebook campaign um, a Facebook page which brought together all kinds of groups and individuals who offered coordinated relief services. And I discussed all of this in, uh, in the introduction to the book. What, what really stood out to me at the time was that on the one hand, there were these informal groups and on the other hand, formal registered Jamaat Khairiya, um, which in the literature you find as welfare associations or welfare organizations which were registered under the Ministry of Social Affairs. But what really stood out to me was 
the number of volunteers, the coordinated efforts, the horizontal linkages, which became apparent. So people knowing each other and coordinating the groups, coordinating and individuals coordinating amongst each other and the informal groups, which, you know, given that Saudi Arabia um, already at the time had the reputation of being highly authoritarian and repressive state, it surprised me that there were all these non-registered uh, autonomous groups that popped up, headed many of them by youth, um, which were really visible and, um, and active at the time and theoretically non-existent because they did not fit the legal frame. There was no legal frame at the time. Um, so I returned in 2012, 2013 for my PhD research. And this time I focused on charity for the poor because already in 2005, uh, King Abdullah, upon his, um, ascending the throne, um, he announced a local, a domestic war against poverty in the country. Um, already in 2003, poverty had been a big uh, topic. Um, and I'll, I'll cut it short here, but I wanted to focus in 2012-13 on, on the issue of poverty. And then after... Um, the regime changed in 2015 and um, the state, one of the first measure, measures of the new king, King Salman, was the introduction of an NGO law. I wanted to see later on what had actually changed. So I returned in 2019 for a quick stay of two weeks um, and realized that the changes were so tremendous between 2013 and 2019 that I had to return for a longer period. So I returned in 2020 um, between January and March. And this time I was based in Riyadh, but I visited Jeddah from Riyadh. But that already tells you a lot how the dynamics within the country had changed. Um, so the book, in the book, I really try to cover um, this fieldwork experience of, of about 10 years working in the country. Um, but I study also groups that uh, were established before that. So I'll show you that in a, in a moment. Here you see on the right side, pictures from the Jeddah flood devastation in 2009 and from the um, flood relief uh, efforts in 2009 at the Jeddah Center for Forums and Exhibitions, uh, where I began as a volunteer. And here you see what I mean with informal groups that were really visible. Um, Muwatana was one of the non-registered groups and in interviews, members of Muwatana said at the time they did not want to register with the Ministry of Social Affairs for all kinds of issues they had with the ministry. And instead they chose to operate in this legal gray zone, but they were really visible. I mean, you see here uh, someone wearing a t-shirt with the name of the group. And on the left, I chose the, to show the picture because I want to show you that there are all kinds of um, uh, of individual and collective charity initiatives, which I touch upon, but do not cover in depth in, in the book. But instead I chose to present four case studies in depth uh, of four groups, which follow um, pretty different um, dynamics and logics and mottos in their work. Um, I chose them not because they are representative of aid, but because of the access that I had in parts. And because I think that the, the material allowed for a depth in the description, which um, I think allows us to see dynamics that are um, really important to understand if we talk about the social and state society relations in everyday Islam in Saudi Arabia. So the four groups which I studied are the First Women's Welfare Association uh, in Jeddah, Jam'iyya al-Khairiyya al-Nisayya al-Ula, 
which today calls itself Al-Ula. Um, then the Majid Society, um, which is the one association that is the closest to the royal family. It was established by a prince in 1998, who was at the time also the minister, um, a minister. Let's keep it short. And YIG and the Backpackers, the Backpackers is a name which I chose to anonymize the groups. And both are info, and YIG is the Young Initiative Group. Both were highly popular youth initiatives. Both are informal and both ceased to exist after 2015 for a number of reasons. Um, but the, the people involved in these groups continue to be very active in, in other kinds of projects. And here you see um, the, the table of contents of the book, which um, gives you an idea on the different topics that I touch upon in um, these case studies. So the first deals with questions of Islam and traditional Islamic charity, the first case study, chapter two of the book, and also how this the Islamic frame of reference changed over time. So since the 1960s until 2020, the uh, third chapter, the second case study, deals with this topic of development um, and the war against poverty in the country. Um, because the Majid Society, when I started interviewing at the association, the, my, in the first interview, the first thing that the director told me was um, that they were not doing charity. They offered development because development is a bridge uh, between the individual and society. And that really struck with me because nowadays charity is a highly debated uh, issue in Saudi Arabia. And there are many who say charity is no solution to poverty. Uh, and instead, we have to empower the poor um, and the poor have to develop themselves. And there's this, yeah, these contested notions of how to assist the poor, which I want to highlight um, with the case studies. And then you have the two informal groups. And one, I discuss issues of citizenship and belonging. Um, because what we see, one of the first questions that I usually get uh, asked is, who are these poor? Um, so unofficial poverty um, numbers uh, suggested around 2000, between 2003 and 2005 that 30%, like the numbers went up to 30% of the population in Saudi Arabia lived in poverty. Um, and I think the numbers are pretty much staggering uh, since then. And then the question is, but who are these poor? Are these really Saudis or not? Are they stateless? Are they um, are these migrant workers? Are these official or unofficial, illegal, illegal migrants? And I really want to challenge these these dichotomies, these binaries between, between citizens and non-citizens that we are so used to to applying to Gulf citizen to Gulf societies. And in the fifth uh, chapter, the fourth case study, I discuss issues of uh, entertainment and fun. Um, and I picked that group because uh, even myself, I, I was highly skeptical in the beginning when I when I started um, interviewing around that group. Um, because I didn't like it, it, it. I was really uneasy that how how does charity and poverty and fun and entertainment go together? And I think I, I kept asking the the first few interviews that I did. I was always highly skeptical, and I I kind of expected that either it's serious or it is fun. But how could the two go together? And I really want to also show with this case study how my own um, thinking. Has has developed um, over over time because I think this group is really important in understanding 
um, societal dynamics on the ground because it can go together. Social reform, charity, and activism can go together with a sense of fun and belonging and, and doing things together, which creates a good community spirit. Um, and then I conclude with some observations um, from field work in, in 2020, because um, with all that, that we've seen over the, the last um, years, um, I really want to highlight that there's a paradox happening here. On the one hand, the numbers since 2015 and the introduction of an NGO law, and I actually I have a slide where I'll show you the numbers in a moment. We can see that the, the numbers of um, non-governmental organizations have risen. Uh, I'll show you the number right now. Um, so you see um, that the number went from, when I began interviewing from 420 uh, to, in, in last time I checked around March 2023, the number of the registered Jamaat Ahliya stood at some 3,200. Um, and that is quite um, a massive growth, I would say. Um, and on top of that, uh, don't forget that there are all these informal groups that continue to exist and that do not want to register um, and that operate in this legal gray zone. Um, but on the other hand, we see that uh, the levels of repression um, have been rising. The, the freedom today to address issues of poverty and inequality, this public space, uh, this, this public discourse that King Abdullah opened around 2005 with the national strategy to eradicate poverty is gone today. So today issues of poverty are have become a taboo again. Criticism of uh, Vision 2030 is a no-go. Um, and most, I would also say that most uh, interviewees in around 2020 were very defensive and didn't want to be criticized again, um, because what they really described to me is these radical changes that they've experienced in a very short period of time in their everyday lives. I feel the Saudi Arabia that I saw in 2020 was a very different Saudi Arabia than the one that I started engaging with in 2009. Um, and it is this paradox really that um, with, with which I want to end um, and open the floor because um, I feel really in order to understand what is happening right now in Saudi Arabia, we have to acknowledge that things are really complicated. Um, and we cannot just say either, is it so is it now more free or more authoritarian? Because it is paradoxically both. And I guess I leave it here. And um, I'm happy to show you the pictures um, later on. If, uh, if there's interest. Perfect, yeah, Th thanks so much, Nora. Um, over to you, Hannah, for some quick observations and then uh, a discussion between the two of you. Thank you, Stefan, and thank you, Nora. And the first thing I wanna say, again, is congratulations on the book. Um, it is a very, very informative book. It is incredibly, um, you know, detailed. And there are the stories, as Nora mentioned in the very beginning, uh, the case studies, uh, the stories that she shares are very, very detailed. Uh, there's a lot of data, so much data, um, but there's clearly so much work that has gone into this. Um, and so, you know, it, it definitely is, is something to read over uh, over time uh, to really kind of digest uh, the amount of information. Uh, I think that 
kind of just on what the the point you ended on with with vision 2030 and things changing and this defensive nature of uh, maybe some of the people that you've spoke to in the last round of um, of data collection. Uh, one of the things that really struck me uh, in one of the interviews that I watched uh, MBS talking about the vision, and I think it was a vision a few years on, was his perception of how dysfunctional government was when he came into power and how disconnected and, and um, fragmented everything was and how little coordination uh, was happening within government uh, and how the vision's mission really was on some level to make government function and do these kind of basically to be more efficient, to be more, more um, effective. And so I, I feel like there's this sense that people want everything to have happened yesterday because they're in a hurry to fix that dysfunctional process that used to be um, the norm. Uh, but they're at the same time patient uh, on some level to share and, and reluctant to share what they feel hasn't had enough time to improve. And so I feel like there's that's part of this process of kind of dealing with the change um, is, is not wanting to share because they're not ready, right? Like we're still working on this. And particularly when it comes to things that have to do with social welfare or poverty or things that don't look good. Right. So anything there's this we want to show you and showcase all of the progress that we have made. Give us time and then we will show you all the progress that we've made in these areas that are really uncomfortable for us to talk about. And so they'll maybe discuss uh, some of the changes that have happened with the new um, kind of uh, the new uh, social protection laws, where in the past it was given to individuals um, specifically instead of families. Um, and now you're measuring poverty at the family level. Uh, you're you're correcting for some of the exclusions of people who were working and things like that. And I so so who are poor people? Going back to that question and what you talk about in the book, I think there's a different definition today of who poor people are uh, because of some of these changes and the acknowledgement that poor people can be people who are working. Um, and we we need to measure how much money they are making and how much money they need to spend uh, in order for us to bridge that gap, us being Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development, et cetera. And so I, I feel like there's, you know, there, there have been changes that have happened since the book, which was, you know, over the course of 10 years. And then it kind of stops around where a lot of these other changes started happening. Um, but this really contextualizes where that change is happening. The book really does help um, kind of lay that foundation and understand the history and the motivations for charity, the definitions of who is poor and who isn't, who is included and who is excluded. And then the case studies really bring that out. And I think one of the things, again, this might be my last comment, that I think the case studies are really interested in, interesting is how, you know, one area, Ula, specifically you're focusing on this kind of more we're going this open giving to anybody who needs it. And you're talking about Saudis, non-Saudis receiving a lot of the charity um, and how that might have changed, you know, over time. But I still think there's this notion that this is basically giving people the ability to have um, dignified li lives, really. And then with Majid and the other one, you're really talking about this notion of development and kind of um, capabilities theory comes in a bit. And you're talking about empowering people to take charge of their 
their ability to overcome adversity. Um, and that is the narrative at the moment, as you mentioned, right? The narrative is we're going to help people get out of poverty. We're going to get people to engage in active labor market policies. We're going to get people into training. We're going to get people into small and medium enterprises. Um, and Majid Society may have predated some of these newer um, kind of loan schemes to get people uh, working where they might not have in the past. Um, and now that's accelerated under a different banner, under the vision, under different programs. Uh, but but that really is still the message. And that's where I think it's really interesting to think about get, you know, the, the question of poverty or charity or development within the kingdom is, is this the approach that we should be taking? Should we be focusing on development skills, development and work? Or are there other ways of, of you know, kind of navigating through the process of trying to alleviate um, some of the, as you mentioned, the structural uh, reasons for, for people living under uh, a certain amount of, you know, uh, under a sufficiency line, poverty line, whatever you want to call it, based on the literature that's being produced inside the kingdom and outside the kingdom. So I think those are really interesting. Um, but again, I mean, there's a lot of other questions. I think maybe if you want to open it up to more Q&A, happy to chime in. I mean, before I before I do that, uh, just say that I had um, a lot of experience working with the volunteer groups that you mentioned, um, and I definitely do agree with you that the Jidda uh, floods were a turning point in the kingdom. Charity had been going on for a very long time, but young people weren't really part of that. Um, and I worked with several young people as volunteers, um, you know, kind of 2010 through 2015, and the motivation, the the ability to kind of engage other people uh, to join and support and uh, collectively, you know, uh, find funding uh, venues and causes to support was uh, inspirational, really working with the young people. So I agree, there's a lot of energy and I don't think that that's gone away, but I do think that like you say, all of it is now to achieve this vision, which people do believe is the answer to getting us out of um, this, the need that might still exist in, in society. Do you mind, Stefan, if I quickly respond a few more oh, questions? Um, so one thing that, that, that I try to show with regard to these youth initiatives is you know, like I really try to challenge this idea of this authoritarian state in some sense, which, you know, I don't want to deny the fact that um, like the the basic law of governance doesn't enshrine basic civil rights. So I think we're all clear on that. But um, I feel there's the sense of like, let's look at these youth initiatives and why they ended. I, I think part of it has to do with life cycle. Um, these were young people that at a certain point, um, that was their priority, but then their priorities in life changed. Um, kids, they had kids, they got married, they moved to another city. So there are all kinds of reasons why the also very popular youth initiatives tend to end. But they, they were also facing a lot of criticism for what they did. But it goes hand in hand. And the other thing that I want to add here is, this notion, the, the complexity of understanding um, the, the government and the current transformations. At some point, an interview told me, well, you have the privilege of being provocative, but it's not our style, it's not how we do it. And I'm rephrasing here vaguely. Um, instead, there's this notion of reverse clientelism, this talking behind closed doors, this instead of shaming, 
of giving advice, but giving advice doesn't happen out in the open. And I feel I was really surprised when I, when I like sometimes about the openness that I encountered also with regard to ministries. When I interviewed in 2020 at the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development, I was first of all really surprised that they would accept a, a foreign female scholar doing interviews. And then I was very surprised to actually meet a random chance walking around the offices trying to find my interview partner. I met someone who I had been in touch with in Jeddah. So this was now in Riyadh, but I met I had met him in around 2009, 2010 in Jeddah. And he was working for a nonprofit organization at the time. And But now he was working inside the ministry in the high function. And that, you know, it really showed me that there's this sense of, let's try to get the people who actually know what's going on in the field and get them to work at the ministry. And for them, it was a sense of, before in 2009, 2010, he had been highly critical of the Ministry of Social Affairs, what was called at the time. But then in 2020, he wanted to change the system from within. And I think this notion of trying to change the system from within rather than confronting it, I think it's really important to understand people's own sense of making sense of an authoritarian context and of, of participation. Um, can I just, um, I, I think that that's right. And I think that one thing that's really interesting is the, and it was something that I was thinking about when I was reading uh, the book is where are the young people that were involved in these today? And they are professionals, a lot of them. Um, they had gotten a lot of skills from the training that they got in participating in these charity organizations that they were able to employ. And that almost is um, kind of, Supporting the argument is the more you are able to gain an opportunity to work uh, with a group and to work, you know, on an issue that you're passionate about, the, the more employable you will be, the more, you know, you're going to be able to find work that, that you want, uh, right? Um, but I think that the point in time that these young people came in, they were looking at huge failures of the state, like with the um, floods, and that made them look for other failures that they could come in and, and help with. And the young people that are that age today are looking at the opportunity to go around on scholarship. They're looking at the opportunity to get involved in some of the active labor market policies. They have a different um, kind of, they're not looking at these disasters and thinking nobody's doing anything about them. They're thinking, I would love to be part of these state-owned companies or these, you know, um, these in, the labor initiatives where I can get a loan and start my own company and work on it in that way. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, a different entry point for a lot of young people. And just to add to that, because it's really important for me also to de-exceptionalize um, Saudi Arabia and what we see then when we look at global research on volunteering, we see that there is this gap of uh, people between 30 and 50, they don't volunteer. And this is a global phenomenon. And when I started interviewing the young people that I that I met, I mean, we were the same around the same age. It was people in their early 20s. Throughout their 20s, they did that. And some were even younger, like advanced teenager age. Um, but now, I mean, they're busy building careers, raising children, etc. So, like, frankly speaking, I think many of them, they might be disillusioned from life, um, from life and politics and all the workload that they experience now. They have other priorities. But the networks that I saw, the connections that they built and the sense of empowerment, which they, which they gained, the sense of I can make my, my voice heard, 
I can get together with other people, we can mobilize for a cause. I think this is an ability that rests with many of them. And we saw this um, during the COVID pandemic, there was suddenly, there was again this window that where there was for a few months, there was a tremendous wave of mobilization that, that, that came in. And I think this is this just shows that, you know, I started the book with the with the quote from Sheila Carapico's work, um, who says that um, civil society is like the wind. It's difficult to describe in its shape, but when it blows, um, you know it's there. And I feel this is really what, what is happening here with these, like one of the arguments that I'm trying to make about civil society and authoritarianism is that we should focus less on the form and shape, like less on the legal frame. One of the things that I found most surprising in my interviews in 2019, 2020, was that many of these, even social activists, when I when I began asking about the new legal frame and the NGO law, they weren't even aware of the fact that there was an NGO law now there. Like so many asked me, what do you mean by NGO law? Oh, and then they were then they were saying, yeah, I mean, it's complicated. It has had all kinds of effects. It's, it affected some more than others. Those who used to work for the Jamaat Khairiya and th that like turning them into Jamaat Ahliya, that was more of a process that was felt by many. But these informal groups, the social activists who were like more of short-term activists, they didn't necessarily even know that there was an NGO law They they because they were working outside of the legal frame in the first place. So I think we should really, when we talk about civil society and authoritarian contexts and structures, have a more comparative view um, to, in order to de-exceptionalize, I don't even know if that's an English term, um, <laughs> the kingdom, and also um, look less at the shape and more at the functions of civic activism on the ground and in people's lives. Great. Thanks. Before we open it to the Q and A, uh, I was going to very quickly abuse Chairman's privilege and ask one little question of my own, and that is, uh, I think it's, it's generally agreed that Saudi Arabia has become drastically more socially liberal, including uh, you know, tolerating or officially endorsing and and subsidizing the types of activities like uh, you know, hiking, sports, entertainment, some of those things that were still a bit subversive at the time when you when you observed those groups. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, political space in a strict sense has is, is much more closely surveilled and uh, criticism of government in any kind of public fashion is much less tolerated. And so I wonder how that play, how those sort of contradictory impulses play out on the level of the kind of bottom-up informal groups that you look at that deal with issues that are not openly political, so they don't ask for you know, constitutional change or you know, civil rights or anything like this, but deal with issues that are still politically sensitive, like poverty. So if you run or want to start an informal group helping a poor, potentially stateless population in South Jeddah, how do you go about this nowadays compared to what you would have done 10 years ago? And how much more or less of that initiative might there, might there be? Because I, I could both see, you know, more opportunities for that work, but also uh, more constraints and more kind of state attempts to 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 censor and regulate that might be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the net effect is. So I, um, what I observed is that, and that started pretty much immediately after 2015-16, that this like poverty, the taboo, has affected particularly the use of social media. 
like people shy away from using it to the same extent that they use it. In 2009, 10, it was really a tool that really helped people who are very outspoken and open and posted a lot of also pictures of themselves, um, a lot of personal statements. And what I what I see between 2015 and 20, 2020, is that people still use social media, but to a much more limited extent and without any personal information, without pictures. And even groups that existed, um, they their lifespan was even shorter, I felt, two, three years maybe, or two, three Ramadans. Um, they were shorter and much more uh, careful to anonymize um, their activity. Um, and this this also goes, you know, like when I interviewed in 2020, I people whom I interviewed before out in the open in their offices, they then said, you know, they met me in closed spaces and they asked me to, to keep my phone away. So, you know, we would let leave our phones in one place and then go to another space. And these were like really like closed up spaces and people like I could really sense that there was a, a fear of maybe being caught saying the wrong thing. Um, because also I feel it's at, like in 2020, it was much less clear uh, what was still okay to say and what not. Um, but also I want to emphasize that I, I feel after 2011, um, you know, when we when we had these in Western academia and Western media, this kind of celebration or memory or memory of 10 years ago, there was the so-called Arab Spring. I feel in the region, the dynamics have been much different because 10 years later, those countries who had no so-called Arab Spring, no uprisings, are actually collectively doing much better. I would say I'm not a statistic person, but are doing much better than those who had these uprisings in 2011. And there's a great sense of disillusionment now that this collective, very political, outspoken mobilization is maybe not the right path. And I, you know, I want to just remind us, and I don't need to remind you, I, I know that uh, we are probably on the same page, but this, the sense that democracy is the, the path that the civilizational force, um, I think all these are highly normative um, ideas um, that are not necessarily true around the globe. So I think there's still the sense of people waiting that the Middle East uh, would turn democratic in some sense, but actually, you know, I, I feel we, are, we should be much further and accept that there are different paths taken by different countries. And it looks to me like people in Saudi Arabia at the moment, they do not, not like at least there's a majority, it seems to me, that is not at the moment interested in democratic structures for a lack of maybe seeing how that should be realized. And I think there is a high sense of um, achievement currently, and a very careful sense of, let's wait and see how things are playing out, but there's radical change and there's hope, there's a lot of hope that the country might actually achieve something great in down the line 10, 20 years. And I feel really this, it's very difficult, I feel for many people in the West to, to understand that there is something going on there that people actually on the ground, despite this authoritarian frame and might actually be proud of 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 these developments. Um, can I try to also respond uh, to the question, Stefan? It was really interesting, kind of post um, um, 
Well, thank you for that, Nora. First of all, I think that that's that's you know really important to remember the lens. But just to go back to the question is post uh, COVID, I participated in this workshop where we were talking to um, different um, active um, members within. Um, kind of the social um, space. And a representative from the Ministry of Human Resources um, and Social Development um, prepared a presentation specifically on how they were able to harness uh, the knowledge of civil society organizations in order to make sure that they were able to get um, aid and support to all living people within the kingdom citizens, non-citizens alike, uh, and that they didn't necessarily know where to find um, kind of these networks of, for instance, you know, people who didn't have the right documentation to get the support that was offered by the state at the time. Uh, so they relied very heavily on different groups, um, and particularly religious groups. So a lot of the religious outreach groups um, that work with, uh, you know, different segments of um, work, you know, uh, people who are coming to the kingdom to work. So the ministry at this point turned to civil society in order to be able to get the support out as much as they possibly could. And they they knew these, these organizations existed. They knew the organizations were active within these spaces and they wanted to utilize that to, to the benefit of getting the support where it needed to go when everything was closed and people couldn't go and, and purchase groceries and access water and access food. So it was, uh, and healthcare as well and vaccines and all of that. So I thought it was a really interesting presentation from the ministry really. Um, and, and I learned quite a bit about how they utilize these networks um, in order to, to, to do different things so it was very interesting might i just add one more thing also i think sometimes the struggle that, that people go through especially since 2020 what i see from from abroad that the their struggles when we look at actually the the neighborhoods that i did most of my studies in now in Jeddah, they've been they now when i look at pictures it looks to me like war zones they've been torn down like entire neighborhoods have been torn down and they're currently under, they're being rebuilt. Um, the urban landscape is changing drastically and people are fighting for their homes, for, um, um, for their families, for, for a place to be. Um, and these are struggles that, that do not fit within this frame of democracy, political parties, etc. There are other struggles and they happen and they happen in the semi-open, semi-public, um, much in this online space. And But these are struggles that I, I, I feel we tend to overlook when we look for um, political mobilization directed at regime, regime change. Thanks both. I think we have to give our audience the, the chance to uh, get uh, replies to some of their questions. So the first one in the chat is from Ahmed bin Tuk, uh, who points out that Saudi Arabia envisions that 5% of its GDP uh, is meant to be uh, from the third sector. So from, uh, I, I think, so what is an alternative term for civil society, uh, which is twice as much as the, what the US has, uh, according to um, at least the, the vision document. Uh, so, do you see changes on the ground in terms of the, the presence of third sector, I mean, non-government organizations uh, that that reflect that? Uh, he, he mentions uh, 
the physical presence in, in malls or stalls uh, and you know I, I guess the presence of those activities in, in the public space uh, or the, the way that they're being licensed and promoted by government agencies. So this is something that I describe in um, in the fourth case study in the book how the um, how I would say civil society has has changed or is currently changing from being as a sector or you know like a loosely organized sphere of engagement to being a tightly regulated sector um the third sector when i use it in the book it it really speaks to this government uh, enforced structuring which comes with more monitoring with more surveillance also with more support so ironically what we see is that um with the NGO law, and it's remarkable that this was one of the first measures taken by the king, uh, issued by royal decree, um, since 2015-16, really many ch much has changed to the effect of pushing and rallying. I think the goal was 1 million volunteers by 2030. Um, volunteering has, has really been identified as something good for society and something um, at a larger level important for the nation, for the for revival, for the growth of the nation. But I feel ironically, this has tightened the space of the permissible. Um, the it, it is pushing, but at the same time enforcing and this the level of surveillance and monitoring is also has risen over time. So again, it is one of these developments that are paradoxical because on the one hand, there is um, more growth and more possible. And on the other hand, things have really become more tight uh, for people on the ground. I think to some extent, it's probably just also what we could describe as political modernization, right? Governments, whether authoritarian or uh, democratic, become more institutionalized over time and social activities become more regulated. Uh, so, of course, there's been an acceleration through the vision, but I think some of this was already sort of in train before there were already sort of corporatist initiatives to formally represent or organize certain sectors, certain parts of society under King Abdullah. So uh, there's also sort of, I think, just a global process at work there with all the, you know, benefits and drawbacks that has. Um, now, we've got another question from uh, Altea Pericoli, which is about uh, Zakat. Uh, and the question specifically, how is it collected and distributed by civil society organizations? How much control do they have over that? Um, so one of the things that I found most fascinating, so first of all, I think this the whole question of Zakat is one that uh, has to be researched much more. We know very little about it, given that um, it, the zakat is one of the five pillars of Islam. I think it's, and Saudi Arabia is one of the few countries globally where it has been raised to the level of a tax at some point. Um, I, I feel it's shocking how little we actually know. One thing that I learned is that um, there's this idea of public and private zakat. Um, corporations, businesses, etc., give their zakat to the state, kind of. So for, from, for them, it has been a tax collected by the state. And the charity organizations, they largely draw on this private zakat. So what they try is to mobilize individuals to give their individual zakat to them because they know best what is um, what the poor need. They uh, describe themselves as a mediator between those in need um, and between the social issues and the individuals. Because what we 
see, and again, I think it's a global development, is that these connections between um, the wealthier segments of society and the poor, are um, this division is widening. And we can actually see that it is widening also in, in terms of urban space. So in 2009, when I started interviewing among these young people who went to the to those neighborhoods affected by the floods, um, they were really shocked. Like that was one of the themes that emerged from interviews, this shock of seeing that other neighborhoods in the same city are, are so poor. Like I think many people, especially in Jeddah, where you have this north-south divide, people living in the north um, are often shocked and have no idea how poor people in the south live. And these welfare associations, they, they try to be the mediators between those better off who live quite disconnected lives um, from those poorer um, populations. Um, great. So the next question is from uh, Razan and is what uh, is the, the welfare impact of the transition from informal groups to sort of more formally regulated NGOs, uh, both in terms, of, I guess, the the effects they have, the populations they target, and uh, the, what, what happens to the people who work in these organizations? Uh, is it the same people? Or do they then more formally recruit a different kind of staff? So I guess what are the main ramifications of this, of this kind of formalization, both in terms of uh, policy outcomes, as it were, and the, and the structure and the, the social composition of these groups? Um. So I think one of the major differences was um, before 2015 that according to the laws, there were very narrow areas of what was considered charitable khayri and what was so charitable, medical, educational. There were very few, I think it was like five or six areas um, that could be supported by formally registered charitable groups. This has changed. Since uh, the 2015 laws, um, there's basically nowadays any uh, any field of engagement is pretty much possible um, under these new laws. Um, but still, that one of the major differences is that according to the laws, the the a those involved in the charities have to be in the board, and the those formerly working for the associations have to be Saudi citizens. And aid has to go to Saudi citizens. Um, and this was, I mean, I'm, I'm saying formally because what I found also surprising is that in both Jamaat Khairi and Jamaat Ahliya and among the informal groups, most people that I interviewed said, when a poor person comes or when I see someone in need, I help them. I don't ask, where is your iqama? I don't ask, where is your passport? I will help. And that is really like an overall theme throughout the years and no matter what the legal frame. And I think the state is well aware of it and turns a blind eye to it because they also see that Islamically speaking, this is how they these interviewees tell me, Islamically speaking, um, is particularly if this is a Muslim, but also if not, it is my duty as a Muslim to help someone in need. So, you know, you have this on the one hand, um, the institutionalization of aid has certain effects, like it is directing aid to certain fields and to certain groups of people. But then um, what, when we actually look at the ground, I think the differences are not so uh, large between formal and informal groups. Can I add to that just a little bit? I think um, 
one of the things that's really interesting is that when you do get that formal status, first of all, other people are aware that you are working in this area. And so it allows for more collaboration across the kingdom to target different segments of society. But um, another thing that's also really important is that it allows for collaboration with, with ministries or bigger entities that are working in these areas. So with healthcare in particular, there's a lot of lobbyist groups to, that you know existed informally for such a long time, kind of, um, but I would call them that because they were really advocating for more support for certain, let's say for mental health or for special needs or for whatever other um, uh, kind of healthcare uh, issue that we're interested in, but couldn't really get things done until they were formalized. And then they were able to work directly with the Ministry of Health on expanding these services. So I think the formalization helps in, in, in that reach as well, which I think is really important. Um, the very quick interjection while uh, you, you speak about the charity for uh, non-citizens. And um, uh, what struck me about the stories that I read in the book, which were very poignant, was that some of this seemed uh, kind of specifically hijazi to me in the sense that it's a very cosmopolitan uh, region where everyone comes from somewhere. You know, everyone's ancestors, with very few exceptions, came from somewhere else in the Muslim world at some point. So there's a lot of uh, intermarriage, uh, including between citizens and non-citizens. There's a lot of kind of informal social solidarity, also local identity. So if you're a Macaui, if you're from Mecca, you'd uh, you, you also feel Macaui if you are, say, of Burmese descent, but you're a second generation or something like this. Um, so I was wondering to which extent those kind of transnational solidarities you think were sort of more hijab specific, or did, did, you, did you see to the extent that you did field research in other places? Did, did you feel that this kind of transnational uh, sort of Muslim solidarity was something that, that you would also have in the central province or the eastern province? So I saw it also in Riyadh. Um, especially among the informal groups, and I describe uh, two of the two initiatives um, during Ramadan between 2016 and 2020 um, that happened at the time, which were equally um, organized by um, people who self-identified as um, non-citizenship holders, but with a strong sense of belonging to uh, Riyadh, and they from what I, from the pictures that I saw online of the beneficiaries, um, many of them look to me like um, people from the, around the world. Um, and this is, as I said, I mean, the period between 2015, people have been much more holding back with information. And these two organizations that I described have been very careful in not disclosing their identities. Um, but it seems to me that this, particularly around Riyadh, um, that Riyadh and Jeddah are in some kind of echo with each other. Um, I don't know about the South. I would be very curious to hear more about the Eastern province and the North. And I think this really invites more research. I think it's similar in the Eastern province. I mean, that's that's where my research usually is and where I'm from. And so, yes, I think that it's, it is definitely very similar in the, in the same way. People feel like they are part of the community and you still do have people who are, you know, second and third generation living in the kingdom that don't necessarily have citizenship. And they still, there's that sense of belonging and there is that sense of inclusion on many levels as well. Yeah, and it's a really interesting untold story in an age of, you know, hyper patriotism and nationalism where you, and, and where citizenship is such a high price and the boundaries in regulatory terms are so, are so tight. It's quite fascinating. This, so this is one of the points I'm trying to make in the book that we've, um, and I mean, I'm, I, I speak here with, with 
with other scholars and I benefit from other researchers' ideas. Um, and I find it very convincing to rethink this notion of citizenship in terms of not only thinking of legal status, but to think of it as a practice and something that comes from, a, from people doing something with other people. So it's really community creates community and this, these community efforts really create more community efforts and a sense of community. Um, and I think this is really central for understanding people, the, the people's sense of belonging um, to a place, to the region, to a city, to a neighborhood, um, which I think is important for this, you know, to add on to the existing literature on citizenship. Great. So I think we got, uh, we're right on the road at six, but we've got a final question from Charlie Howman that I'll try to pick the most relevant bit of what he wrote, which is, do you think there's more charitable activities over the past 10 years of your field work? And, and if so, why? Um, I would actually be interested to also hear Hannah's uh, view on this. I think that um, there is more general activity, and I would also say more charity, more collective engagement, maybe. Um, but people are, I also see that among youth and young people, especially among like over the last five years, there is less of an interest to work with the charity because there are other options nowadays. But young people can do all kinds of things. They don't necessarily find um, the sense of fulfillment which they found in the years 2000 when I began my work and which they found at the time in charity, I think they find it now in other areas and spaces because there's this, this fundamental social opening. Um, but I think that the numbers, the wealth gap has been, um, the gap between rich and poor is growing and at level of education is growing. And the sense of we we have to engage for our well-being collectively. It's our duty to do something for society. I think this is also growing the sense. Um, yeah, Hannah, what do you think? I think it's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't know, to be honest, because I feel like there's always charity is something that everybody talks about a lot all the time. There's more of an awareness of where, where need is globally. And I feel like there's still a lot of need inside the kingdom, but people would like to be able to support in multiple different ways. Um, and then there's all these digital um, kind of platforms in which you can give to charity. And so that makes it really easy for young people to access it. Now, if you use those digital platforms and then, then, you know, people know how much you've spent and, you know, what what disposable income is available to go towards zakah, which might not be the case otherwise. Um, so people sometimes might be a bit reluctant to, to give through these portals and do it through the networks that have always existed within their families. Um, so I think that it's probably the the same on some level. It just looks different um, and it's happening in, in newer and in, in different ways, especially with young, uh, very digitally literate young people within the kingdom. And that's one of the fascinating aspects of charity, really. It's that it's such a universal phenomenon, meaning that it existed throughout time, throughout hundreds of years. The same traditions are, are kind of showing up in different versions and in different with different targets maybe and different practices, but it's the same phenomenon somehow. And it's such a universal and global um, phenomenon. Um, so yeah, maybe nowadays it's just become more visible through social media than in the past, but it definitely existed for a long time. And I personally, I found it really 
uh, surprising, and again, I think it's something that demands more research, that the first um, collectively organized Jamiat Khairiya already date back to the 1930s in Saudi Arabia. So that, I think, is really something remarkable, this long tradition of collective charitable engagement. Great. Uh, Nora, any famous last words? Um, I leave it with that. I hope my book is only the start of a, of a conversation. Um, yeah, and thank you for taking the time to engage with it. And the audience, listen. For thanks, it. everyone. Uh, thanks for, for a great talk. Everyone, uh, buy the book. And uh, hope to see you all again soon for another MEC event. Thank you very much. Thank you.